following program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, is brought to you by our Mind, Body, Health, and Politics team. We produce this program as well as books. The first one was Psychedelic Medicine, and the one that just came out last night is called Psychedelic Wisdom, and I think you can see it on your screen here. We also do lectures from time to time. Please go to the website for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, check in, look over the archives, and become a subscriber. We'd love to have you as part of our psychedelic community, as well as our Mind, Body, Health, and Politics community. And welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and psychological well-being and encourage community. And I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are tribal, friendly animals. And when we associate with one another in small enough groups where we know each one by name or at least by face, we are cooperative and collaborative. However, that said, we must acknowledge that there are a small percentage of we humans who are dangerous predators. And those people, when they organize in tiny groups, are very dangerous to the rest of us. And we must be forever mindful so that we maintain our democracy and our republic and not allow ourselves to ever going back to being subjects, but always remain as citizens. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, it's my privilege to be interviewing Sarko Gagarian. He is the first working police officer in the United States to earn the Certified Addiction Recovery Coach credential from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He also has a lot of other credentials, so many that we're going to begin the, e the uh, interview by asking him to tell us about some of them. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Sarko. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. It's my pleasure to be here. So, as I said in the brief introduction, you've got a lot of credentials. Tell us about some of the other things that you're certified in. I know you're, you're certified with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which was founded by my dear friend, Rick Doblin, who's really on the cover of this book that I just showed. And you've got other certifications. Give us a summary of, of, of some of your uh, uh, credentials. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, so, you know, I always start off by saying that I'm a working police lieutenant by day. Um, I have the privilege to uh, work in the police department in my community. And uh, nights and weekends, I work as a psychotherapist, uh, primarily with adults. Um, my undergraduate studies were in philosophy, religion, and uh, um, psychology uh, from Northeastern University. Um, I got my master's degree in mental health counseling and psychological services from Salem State University. And I'm currently working on my doctorate in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute in uh, Santa Barbara, California. Wow. What a thing it would be if we had more police officers in this country who had psychological training, even a, a, a smidgen of the amount that you have, because the way you approach citizens in doing your peacekeeping job 
has to be dramatically different than those who don't aren't fortunate enough to have such terrific training. Oh, it, it is, um, Dr. Miller. You bring something up um, that touches my heart. Um, I, I actually believe that we need not only diversity, equity, and inclusion of different types of people on our police force, but of different types of education for our police officers, not just criminal justice and law. If you had a magic wand and you could design training for police officers the way you would like it to be, tell us some of the things that you would include in training for police officers in the United States. Oh, I, if I had that wand that you're talking about, I'd love to wave it um, in a manner that would create um, incentives for police officers to go down professional development tracks that are broad and, and based in the liberal arts that give them access to the social sciences, to psychology, to social work, to counseling, um, to, to religion, to history so that their perspectives can be broad, so that there can be a broad understanding of how we found ourselves in the present moment, what went into creating the magnificent present moment that we're all experiencing right now. So you would give them a broad education rather than a narrow education. Now, is it based on your many years, if not decades of experience, do you think the average police officer would be open to such training or advanced training? The public at sometimes thinks that police officers sort of look askance at the field of psychology, like it's a bunch of stuff for foo-foo or, you know, those other kind of people, but it's not in their wheelhouse. What can you tell us mm -hmm. about, has that attitude changed or is it still current? Well, I think one of the, one of the factors that goes into creating that uh, a, a narrow, narrow perspective related to continuing education is professional development opportunity. Um, you know, uh, earning rank and, and building a career uh, within law enforcement um, has these etched out pathways that already exist, right? And people get locked into those pathways. And that involves a certain way of thinking, that involves a certain way of acting, and that involves a certain way of policing. So we've got a lot of inertia working against broadening perspective, broadening opportunity, and allowing officers to know that a career can be built on other educational tracks. Well, does, does the average police force, whatever the average police force means, I, I, I wonder if I even should be saying that because there may not be such a thing as an average police force given the huge disparity in sizes of police forces in this country. I mean, the city of Los Angeles, New York, and Boston must have police forces that are huge compared to, say, the little town that I live in of 7,500 that has a little tiny police force of maybe 15 officers. That's right. That's right. I believe there's uh, uh, hundreds of, of, of police departments that are even less than 15 officers or, or more than that. Um, you, you bring up a solid point and they're so different and their, uh, their staffing levels are so different and their budgeting is so different and the challenges appear different. Absolutely. Well, let, let's say a police officer in my town listens to this interview and he says, you know, that sounds like a good idea. I could use some training in how to counsel people 
or I could use some training. This, this, this officer, Sarko, he's saying that it would be good for me to learn some psychology or go to, is there, are there national programs or statewide programs that are available to, to police officers or do they, are they sort of on their own and they better just find a local community college and so on? Well, I can speak to Massachusetts. Uh, we have a very robust training council um, that puts out the required curriculum that, that the officers have to study every year to stay up to date with their credentialing to allow them to work as a police officer the following year. Aside from that, they, they can look at the local community colleges. They can look at online sources of information and other universities that are nearby. Um, there's certifications, associate degrees, bachelor degrees, um, and, and they could take whatever courses that they, they feel they could get the most out of. So there are opportunities in Massachusetts. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the, the yearly curriculum that the training council puts together um, follows the times. And, and, you know, they've got their antennas tied into what's going on in society, uh, the expectation changes in the public, and they put out material um, uh, for the officers to get every single year. That happens automatically. Well, I want to say that I'm aware that you're, in a, you're a police officer, and it's possible that I'll ask a question that it would be better for you not to answer. And if that be mm -hmm. the case, I totally respect you're just saying to me, I'd prefer not to answer that. There won't be any hassle whatsoever, because I, I understand. So one of the questions I, I have, you know, in that regard is, in 1935, a man named Mellon, who was Secretary of the Treasury, appointed his nephew, Harry Anslinger, to be the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And in my opinion, Harry Anslinger misused his position, and he used it as a way to foster his racism. He was known as an ardent racist. And so he went after people of color, Hispanics, uh, Chinese people, uh, Hispanics. And the way he did it was by pushing hard on the drug laws so that he could arrest Hispanics for using marijuana and Asian people, Chinese for using opium and black people for using cocaine. And he spread wild stories like black people give cocaine to white women so they can have sex with them. And Hispanics use marijuana and they run wild and they become rapists and all this kind of stuff, right? He was very successful. He was a very powerful man. And he went on this campaign and he eventually, because of his power, was able to go to the United Nations and he was able to push other countries around the world into making various substances illegal. Prior to that, for example, heroin and cocaine, they were handled by medical doctors and they took care of the addicts and they took care of people who were having trouble. And we didn't have mass epidemics. We had medical doctors taking care of people who used heroin and cocaine and particularly heroin. And there was never a problem because the average American, even back then, 100 years ago, knew better than to mess with heroin. You know, we're not dopes, us Americans. We get it. We don't eat rat poison. We don't take heroin. There's a small percentage who do. But as a result, as you well know, of these draconian laws and these the arrests of so many people, other drugs and other substances were then made illegal as well. So LSD was made illegal in 1967. 
There was never any fear that we were going to have an epidemic of LSD in this country. It's not the kind of thing you get addicted to to begin with. But that happened. Okay. As a result, I'm getting a little long-winded, but I tend to do that. So bear with me. As a result of all this, police forces around the United States were turned into the guardians of these laws and had to make arrests. And it got into their consciousness that people who were involved with drugs were bad guys. And in many cases, they were bad guys, particularly the ones who manufactured and dealt the drugs. And we had a situation prior to Anslinger with Prohibition where a group got together, a very small but powerful group called the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and they got through the amendment to make alcohol illegal, what we call prohibition. Well, you as a police officer and I as a clinical psychologist know darn well what then happened. People didn't drink less. They just drank illegal whiskey. And what that meant was it spawned illegal activity, which then made the mafia one of the most powerful organizations in the United States, if not the world, because they were dealing this illegal substance. Fast forward, we had the same thing happen then with what we call as drugs, because people didn't stop using heroin, cocaine, or LSD, or et cetera, but it gave people who were interested in selling a huge opportunity. And what do we have now? Worldwide narco-traficante cartels with so much money that they can buy a whole government. And they are buying governments in South America. We're very lucky that it hasn't happened to us yet. But when you think about it, Sarko, what is the president of Mexico going to do when somebody like an El Chapo or in Colombia, an Escobar, sends a representative and says, plata or plumba? Either you take a $100 million bribe, imagine, a $100 million bribe to the president of Mexico, or we're going to kill your family, not just your wife and your kids, your grandparents, your cousins, everybody in your family, and even your friends. We're going to kill them all. What is a human being supposed to do with that kind of threat? It's incredible. Okay, so getting back to the consciousness of police officers in the United States, now everybody gets tarnished as bad guys, not just the cartels, your average guy on the street, some kid 18 years old is smoking weed or takes a little cocaine, right? Then we're trying to do, some of us like yourself, to make these police officers peace officers rather than attacking officers that they get their reputation for. But all these years they've been trained that there's so many bad guys out there and there's drugs everywhere. You got to be on the alert all the time. And of course, it's caused corruption with the police, within the police forces themselves. This is all in the way of asking you now, what the heck do we do about this, Sarko? How do we reorganize the police force? How do we chain their consciousness so that they become the people that we want them to be, which are our peacekeepers and protectors? I want the police force to protect my family. I want to be able to reach out and get help for my children. Absolutely. uh, Absolutely, Dr. Miller. Uh, You point something out. um, You know, I just want to plug something in here about what you said. Our police promotion material, the textbooks that we study to to pass promotional exams, uh, uh, to become sergeants, to become lieutenants, actually talk what you just shared. They're, they're in the books, how the prohibition era um, caused alcohol to become more toxic, caused the environment to become more dangerous 
caused the birth of gangsters, made, the, made, made everything more dangerous and made everybody more unsafe. So that material is actually in our police promotional textbooks in Massachusetts. That information's there. And we find ourselves doing the same thing in pattern over and over and over again. And yes, you know, particular substances were uh, uh, chosen because certain groups used them. So, you know, we, we were tasked with infiltrating those groups based on the substances that they were using. And we ended up filling the prisons disproportionately with people of color. We know, right, that everybody uses drugs at the same level. So how did we end up with the prisons completely uh, out of whack and imbalanced, right? So, so we, we are in this uh, deeply tangled, convoluted, complicated problem, and we are slowly coming out. I am hopeful that it will continue. We need to speed it up a bit here. And one of the things is that our public our public's expectation of our police have changed, right? We're, we're, we're moving out of the us and them era, and we're moving deeper into a unified society of, of, of people that we need to take care of, right? So the expectations on our police are changing, and the police culture is going to have to change with that. And stigma is being attacked by the help of science, which is indicating that addiction actually isn't a moral failing, right? Science says that this is, at, at a certain stage, a, a, a brain disorder because the substances change the brain, right? And we have to move addiction deeper into the umbrella of mental health challenges and help people with the challenges rather than putting them into prison and keeping them there. Science is doing its job. The public is doing its job. And our police are going to have to step up to the challenge and change the way that they're perceiving the civilians that we're supposed to be there helping. One of the things that is very difficult for me to understand, I do understand it, but it's challenging, is why some of us know that with the stroke of a pen, we could eliminate all the cartels simply by making the substances that they trade in legal. What would they do then? They'd be out of business all around the world. They would be out of business if we made these substances legal and either put them under the jurisdiction of doctors or just made them over the counter with warnings and said to the American public the truth. Heroin is blah, 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 blah. And what it can do to you. Cocaine can do the, the, to your cardiovascular system, to your respiratory system. It can ruin your life. And here's how. And we give the information on all of these substances and trust the American people to be adults, because we did learn from prohibition, as you obviously now know, and your and your police forces know, people didn't go on a bender when prohibition ended. It's not like the whole country went out and got drunk. Because you know why? Because they were drinking just as much when it was illegal as when it's legal. There was no change really. The only change is the gangsters didn't have to, couldn't make money off alcohol anymore. But actually, they did because they went into the legal alcohol business because they had so much money to invest. But at least it was legal, and then the government got taxation from it. Part of the biggest the problem, in addition to the death and destruction of lives with making these substances illegal, is the government doesn't make any tax money off it. But what we do have to do is pay guys like you and the DEA and the and others to prosecute to go after. So we have an expense with no income. 
that's not a good way to run a business. That's right. <laughs> All expense and no and no income, right? But it doesn't look like it's on the horizon to make these things legal. The politicians, they I don't know where their heads are at on that. They they make these stories up. I don't trust any hardly any of them or believe them. They say it's they, they always blame the public. My constituents don't want it. My constituents don't want it. Is that well, true? Y- you know, uh, one thing that I, I want to bring up is you touch upon something called safe supply, right? And um, if, if, if we care about people, we got to make sure that supply is safe. If you go buy alcohol, you get what you're looking to get. You don't go blind because it's dirty alcohol, right? Right, right. Um, so so, so a, a, a loving, caring, benevolent government will take into consideration what the public uh, is looking for and will work to ensure that the, the supply is safe and clean, period, end of story. And we've already got evidence that that works and we're not willing to replicate it. My thinking about why that's not happening is because industry interests are very powerful, right? Big pharma interests are very powerful. And if you have finance, you can influence government. And when you start influencing government by way of dictating what laws that our officers have to operate under, you start influencing the way our officers act on the street. So what ends up happening is our officers, instead of protecting and serving the people, end up protecting and serving industry, big pharma interests, protecting the substances that they bring down the pipeline that are patent protected, that make them billions and millions of dollars, um, while this other set of substances stays prohibited. So so it's really a convoluted uh, situation. And we're coming out of it very slowly. Look at what happened with marijuana. Look at what Joe Biden had to say about marijuana, right? Uh, and it is still Schedule One, highly addictive. Not the, it's, it, That's not the case. Psilocybin, mu- mushrooms, no known medical use, highly addictive. Not the case. LSD, same thing. Mescaline, same thing. You go down the list of everything that's prohibited that we're policing, and it's not the truth. How does, how does that make a police officer feel to be going after people for, let's say, using LSD or psilocybin when the police officers are, inf- are informed? Evidently, you're not going to get in trouble for what you just said, that it's well known that these substances aren't addictive. That means the people that you work with also realize they're not addictive, and yet they're going out and they have to do the arrests because it's still, as you say, Schedule One an illegal substance. It must make you guys sometimes feel... I'm not talking about when you're going after gangsters and cartel people and guys with guns. I'm talking about people on the street who are using these substances, right? It must twist your heads in order to make arrests on on, on some guy who's working as as a plumber and has a nice family, and he decides that he's going to use some uh, psilocybin or marijuana, and you got to arrest him and ruin his life. So here's the thing, Dr. Miller. I I wouldn't say what we are sharing with one another and the audience is, is well known. So I really appreciate being able to talk this over with you and get this out to people so that they understand. Um, the no, no, known medical use and highly addictive label for the substances on Schedule 1 just are not um, the case. It's not the case. And I don't know how many officers have their antennas tied into that fact. But if we take a look at what we've done with marijuana and how many lives have been destroyed because of marijuana arrests and how many people are sitting in prison because of marijuana, 
and and state by state, it's getting recognized to be a medicine and safe enough to be open and available to people for recreational use. I got to tell you, policing those laws has morally injured a lot of our first responders. Yes, I would think so. I would think so. I'm telling you. That's you I, know? I think that's beautifully said, Sarko. Morally injured, a good person. Give that's it. right. A good, a good detective. That's right. right? So what, what we're saying here, Dr. Miller, is good cops, bad war. There's, a, I think, a book titled with that name. I haven't read it, right? But the war on drugs is a terrible war, an ongoing war that we need to bring to an end that was started by design by some of the people that you mentioned, right? Correct. That has grown, right? That has grown to this, in, in, uh, um, uh, agencies that have grown to these immensely powerful organizations cross country, uh, cross uh, the ocean to other countries, all interlinked together. And, and, and it, it's hurting our officers and our people. Moral injury. I love the way you put that because if your average cop is out to do good, and I think the average cop is still out to do good in this world, to, to do something that, that twists his mind or twists his heart or twists his consciousness is, is really a terrible thing. And that is going to make police officers even more vulnerable to corruption. Because when you're uncomfortable with what you're doing, and then somebody comes along with some kind of corruption, such as a bribe, you're more vulnerable to it. That's just how humans are. It's not the policemen's like they're 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 idiosyncratic about that. We're when and any of us are more vulnerable. We're open to doing something that we wouldn't do under ordinary circumstances. And that leads me up to the uh, next question. And and just to let you know, we're going to come back to your interest in psychedelics, because I know you're certified. You're probably one of the few, if only, police officers in the United States that's been certified by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. You took their 100-hour training course. I'm aware of that. I want to come back and talk about that, but I want to talk more first. I also want to talk about the fact that that you're certified in a martial art as well as a physical, which is fantastic, and you're also a physical trainer because I have a lot of interest in that because I'm a health advocate and I'm involved in physical training, not helping. I'm not a physical trainer. I, people help me with my physical training. <laughs> and I've, I've got a great physical trainer named, named Mike Mihaus uh, here in Fort Bragg, California. Give him a shout out. Hi, Mike. Um, I read that 20 years ago, approximately, the FBI put the United States on notice that there was a purposeful campaign by white supremacist groups in the United States to infiltrate police police around the country, to go into their offices and become policemen so that over time they would have say over what goes on in policing. Do you know anything about that that you could shed light on? Have you heard that rumor? Or is that a, I mean, I've read about it on the internet, but I don't know for sure that the FBI really made that report. Yeah, I don't have anything that I could sh- share confidently about that. Um, okay. Uh, I, yeah, I don't. Okay, but you might tuck it away. Because when I read that, I found it to be not emotionally frightening, but intellectually frightening that, that any organized group could take it upon themselves to have a 20 or 30 year plan to infiltrate police departments. That is a very, very scary notion. 
And so if you could find out anything, I'd love to communicate with you in the future about it. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. The the second thing I wanted to ask you about, because I've also read this on the internet, uh, because I've been one of, uh, I'm writing another book uh, and a book that I've written about, about uh, uh, sex in America. It's called Sex Unveiled. And I've interviewed various people in occupations, including psychologists, including sex workers, including people who've been abused. I came from you know, a wide variety of people looking at sexuality. Uh, and one of the things I came across is that it's, it's, it's stated in, in various places that I researched that as many as 40% of the police officers in the United States abuse their wives physically. Mm. which is a very high number. Now, it even though it's very high, it's not that much higher than your average person. I think the average level of abuse might be in the 20 or 25%. It's very high, namely the number of men in this country who psychologically or physically abuse their wives, very much including hitting. But you, you're not familiar with that piece of data with regard to police departments, eh? So what, what I, I can say something about this and I want to tie it into moral injury because, um, you know, we have a violence problem, right? We have a violence problem. We have a domestic violence problem. And I'm not just pointing that out towards police um, or first responders. I, I, I mean, I'm just talking about that in society. Yes. Right. Yes. So, so many police uh, calls for service are to come and show up and help with domestic violence that happens in our society. Uh-huh. And, and, and let me just springboard off a of moral injury. On average, Dr. Miller, um, a police officer experiences somewhere around 200 critical incidents within their career. 200 critical incidents. Give us, give us before you go on, Sarko, give us a definition of what you guys mean by critical incident. A critical incident would be something outside of normal experience that can dysregulate somebody. Uh, a, a death, a car crash, a near-death experience, um, a child's death. Uh, you, you, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like a, a, so, something like that. Most people have a handful of those happen in their entire lifetimes in our country. Most people. Think about somebody who's working a job that's going to expose them to over 200. Okay. Now, now, in an industry where it's stigmatized to ask for help. Because of fear that you'll lose your badge, you'll lose your gun, you'll lose your job, you won't be able to pay the bills, right? Right. So we're, we're seeing uh, a depression in officers that is, is going unnoticed. Anxiety. We're seeing divorce after divorce after divorce, right? Because our officers, like you said, are people, right? First, They're not f- robots. First and foremost, you're people like all the rest of us. We're the same. Exactly. Exactly. But we're not in in normal profession. It's, 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 it's a different type of profession yes. and it needs to be looked at appropriately. And these people, our people need support. They need support so that they can have a uh, safe home environment that doesn't have violence, that they have other substances that they can turn to instead of alcohol and nicotine, that they can openly talk about being human without fear of losing their jobs. This is stuff that the police don't have access to right now. We're working on it. We're working on making it better, right? But that's going to influence the way an officer is at home. Be a, be, be a male officer or a female officer. We're seeing divorce rates through the roof. I can't rattle off the numbers, 
But there is a, you know, they they say, well, I'm on my fourth marriage. I'm on my third marriage. It's like, what is going on right now? So there must be data on this. Uh, It it sounds like the divorce rate amongst police officers is higher than the average in the United States. I'd speculate to say so. I I don't have the, the stat in my head. Would you say, Sarko, that every police department in the United States above a certain size has either social workers or psychologists offering services to the police department, or is that not the case? Oh, I I wouldn't say everyone is doing that, no. I would say we're boldly going in that direction, and we need to speed it up. We need our police to have access to multidisciplinary teams of helpers so that we can keep people out of coffins and out of cages. That's where we're going, and that's where we need to keep going. Now, would you say the average police chief, when an officer has one of these critical incidents, makes of those 200 that they're going to have in their lifetime, are they referred to a counselor right after one of those incidents typically, or has that not come into vogue yet? Um, Well, I can speak about our area again. I don't want to claim to know what's going on across the entire country and other states, but I got to say... Massachusetts is leading the effort to make sure we have trained peers available to officers to talk confidentially and to debrief and defuse situations that they experience on shift. So that is happening right now. And uh, I think Massachusetts is one of the leaders in that. And and, and I'm very, very happy that we have critical incident stress management teams um, forming all over the Commonwealth so that um, our officers can confidently confidentially turn to trained peers for support that will lead to mental health professionals. So we need two things to happen at the same time, it sounds like, Sarko. One, the departments have to offer those services so that the services are available for those who experience a critical incident, which will be all of them. But the second thing that has to happen concurrently is that the police officers themselves have to be trained to allow themselves to to take those services. They can't take the old-fashioned, I'm going to man up and I don't need it, or I'll have a couple of drinks and it'll be over, right? That's right. That's right. So so you, you bring up a very val- valuable point. And we are actually in the process of training ourselves to believe that it's okay to talk. That's step one, to talk in presence of other people. But we have to first offer safety. And we have to normalize the behavior that's helpful, which is taking that stored critical incident experience in the body system, in the brainstem, right? And bringing it up and out of the person's mouth, which begins that processing that we talk about in mental health. Yes, yes. I mean, so yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it in Massachusetts. We really are. I mean, when you, when you named off some of the incidents that you classify as a critical incident, it seems so obvious listening to you that any human being, after seeing the murder of a child or a terrible rape or a terrible car crash with body parts, any human being would would definitely benefit from some kind of mental health counseling because they've just seen something that very few people in this world see, or certainly in our country see, but whoever sees it, it's going to be a universally horrendous observation. 
It's not like, you know, like strong people are going to take it better than weak people or any kind of nonsense like that. You see a child that was that was ripped apart or something. It's horrendous for humanity. Right. Well, you're changed. You're changed forever. You're changed That's forever. Right. That's yes. You're That's right. You're changed and, for and, and and Dr. Miller, there is there is something tragic. Um, I want to just bring up one more time, maybe a little more concisely. Please. There, there are some jobs that aren't normal jobs. And the expectation put on the individuals that are working them is 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 not normal. And 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 our first first responders fill some of those roles. And and um, you, you know they 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 need sometimes different opportunities yeah. to vent. Yeah, you know, or different spaces that are created in in culturally appropriate ways to make it safe for them to do healing work. You know, and this is this is something that we can bridge into uh, right into psychedelics here. Um, I don't. I don't know if it's an appropriate point to make that bridge because our first our first responders need access at the same pace that our civilians are going to get access. Okay, we're going to make that bridge right now, Sarko. Well said. How did a police officer in what city are you a police officer in? Winthrop, Massachusetts. How did a, right outside of Boston. Okay. How did a police officer in Winthrop, Massachusetts, come to realize that there are potential benefits? for himself and his fellow police officers from psychedelic. Okay, so there's a little bit of sto a story here, and I'd like to be concise about it. Um, I'll try as best as I can. Um, I came into policing late. I came into policing in my 30s. Most people come into policing in their 20s. So I, I had a, I had a, a, a previous life, um, and I came into policing um, uh, with a little bit of armor, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a training that goes on when you become a cop, and they and there's expectations and 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 you learn how to march to the order to the beat of the drum that you're trained in. Um, so my my previous work was to keep people safe, keep business owners uh, safe, and keep a culture safe in Boston in the nightclub scene. I was a security guard in the '90s. Okay, so I had started working in the 90s right as the scene went from what I believe to be co cocaine and alcohol to MDMA and water. Okay, so I had that knowledge base in me. The entire scene went from highly charged and dangerous people looking at each other like they were enemies to smiling faces in circles that were growing and growing, people welcoming and high fiving each other and hugging each other. In, in, the, in the same venue, same venue, okay? I had that in me. I had that knowledge in me. And when I became a police officer in my community, my police chief started taking me to the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference every year so that I could take the psych track classes, the resiliency classes, the wellness classes that they had to offer, and we could bring that information back and make our programs that we had initiated in Winthrop better. One year... The IACP was in Florida, and I went to that IACP, and guess who was presenting at that conference? The Chiefs of Police Conference in Florida, Rick Doblin, <laughs> phase two, right? So Rick Doblin's there, right? So and in the, in, the, in the conference flyer or the app, um, it said um, uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant severe PTSD, okay? So now, uh, as I shared... I have this lived experience from work that I did in my in my 20s, right? Right. Over the co course of 10 years, uh, front row seat um, to the impact 
um, um, you know, that this molecule has not on a, only on people, but on a, on, a, on a scene, on a culture. Right. And then the Right. And then there's this gentleman, Dr. Rick Doblin, presenting clinical trials about the efficacy of MDMA uh, uh, to, to help with treatment resistant severe PTSD. I, I, I couldn't believe what I saw. I couldn't believe that this was this was happening at a chiefs of police conference. Um, now, now, I, I'm not making this up, Dr. Miller, but that same day during that conference, Donald Trump had come down to talk to the attendees. And they put him exactly at the same time as uh, Dr. Doblin. So I was on floor two of the convention hall. And I'm not making this up. To the right is Donald Trump. And to the left is Rick Doblin. I got to say, thank goodness I went left. Because they had given him and his crew a wonderful room, a big room. They were probably expecting a lot of people to be interested in the topic, as they should, should be. Um, but there was about 15 or 18 of us in that room. I sat in the front row and I got to see this person medicalizing a schedule one substance. I couldn't believe it. And let me share with you the st statistic that I learned that day, which you probably know. Of the participants in that phase of the trial, 67% of them, after they went through MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, the MAPS protocol, did not qualify for the diagnostic label of PTSD. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And Sarko, we knew this 40 years ago. We knew this 40 years ago. More than that, MDMA was scheduled and made illegal in 1985. In the early 80s, I was in psychotherapy treatment with a Dr. Robert Cantor in Atherton, California, and he administered MDMA to me and used it in my treatment. And I started researching it back then. And I met Rick Doblin in 1985. And we were already talking about exactly what you were saying back then. We're talking 15 and 22, 37 years ago. Mm -hmm. we, we were already aware of the efficacy of this substance, this molecule, in treating people both with post-traumatic stress disorder as well as other things. And when you said earlier, you said several times how the wheels of change go very, very slowly. Well, here's a great example. Because here we are in 2022, and bless his heart, Rick Dablin is still working at getting MDMA made into a legal medicine. Right to pass to, to get to the finish line of a marathon that has been his life. That's right. His life's work. That, right. That's right. So I, I mean, I, I, I was, I was shaking. I was shaking with excitement. I jumped on stage. I walked up to him. I introduced myself to him. And when he, he asked me a few questions, and when he found out that I was a working police officer and a psychotherapist, and when I said, how can I help you with this? He said, become a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapist. Become an MDMA-assisted psychotherapist. And he gave me his card. And from that point, when I reached out to him, I got into the first, one of the first cohorts to be trained, and then I was uh, afforded access to a research protocol for, they call it healthy normals, for my experiential, and then... I bet you're, you, aren't you looking forward to the day when in your two days working as a psychotherapist, you can legally use MDMA with the people that come to you for help? Oh, yeah, I am looking forward to that day. And can you imagine what it's like for me? I've been waiting for that day for over 50 years. Oh, my, I can only imagine. It's been, I can only imagine. It's been quite a journey, Sarko, knowing that the public is being denied medicines that could do them so much good and I've watched 50 years of struggle 
that we've been struggling to get these things. I'm going to tell you a little Rick Doblin story that you might enjoy since you've had such a wonderful experience with him. I went with him and a group of scientists to Israel about 20 years ago to offer the country of Israel MDMA to use with their post-traumatic stress people because they were being blown up on the streets. There was an infatata going on. And remember, they were terrorists were blowing up the, their cities. And people were witnessing body parts in, in, in restaurants and in bars. It was incredible. And we went over there to offer them MDMA. That was 20 years ago. And the chief justice of their Supreme Court, I'll remember this deeply in my, for, the, for always in my life, she put her arm around me and she said, Richard, we would love to use MDMA with our post-traumatic stress disorder suffering people. But if we did so, the United States government would sanction us so severely that it would not be worth it and we can't do it. And that is partly the legacy of that man, Harry Anslinger, that I mentioned earlier in the program, who went on this campaign to make all of these substances illegal. And we're still dealing with it, you know, 65 and 85 years later, which is important for the American people to know, which is that a person who is misguided, but who shows his colors as being a racist, a misogynist, a person who's anti, rather than what you talked about, is it's all we, that the we, they is breaking down. But when you let a person who characterizes all of us as we and they in a position of power, they can do harm that can last almost 100 years in our country. And that's something we need to wake up to and be very, very cognizant of. That's the responsibility we have to carry as a representative republic, a democracy. We have to keep what you just said in mind and be careful. I agree with you, sir. And be very, very careful. Okay. I think you used the word vigilant. Yes, that's what. Yeah. Well, that was Thomas Jefferson. Eternal vigilance is the price mm -hmm. of liberty. Mm -hmm. So I want to. We're going to talk a little personal now on on something else, which is your involvement with a martial art. Sure. Tell us a little about your involvement with a martial art. We're going to get lighter now. Oh, you, you know, you bring something up uh, that's so near and dear to my heart. And uh, uh, let me let me let me share something with you about uh, about it. In, in relation to me completing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy training. Um, I, I, I was able to experience ketamine um, um, two times, appropriately spaced apart, intermuscular. And on the second session, I had two things come up during the journey. One of them was martial arts in my martial arts community, including my teacher. And the other was family, both blood and chosen, and my wife. Now, Dr. Miller, I've been with my teacher since I was four. What martial art? Tell us the name of it. Ed Parker's American Kenpo Karate. Karate. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And uh, my teacher's name is Doreen DiRienzo. Um, my parents took me to her school in Riviere, Massachusetts in 1981, and I still was uh, not speaking English. So she was teaching me English as well as karate when I was four years old, I think I was her first uh, uh, tiny child student. That's a great story. That's a great story. So you've been doing it. Wow. It's, it's part of you, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's impacted positively every aspect of my life. Um, another thing that um, I can bring up and say for sure is um, the, the, the value that it's brought into my life 
uh, affording me a confidence that I was able to carry into very dangerous situations that I was called to go into and be a helper, you know? Yes. That confidence. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of that confidence, I'm going to go on to another little uh, route here. And that is, we talked about the importance of counseling, of psychological training, of the soft science for police officers. But there's, it's also important that police officers, I don't have to tell you this, be trained in, I don't know if you're going to call firearms use a hard science, but in trained in that, in, in, in the use of firearms. Now, tell you're going to speak for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I've been told that one of the problems with police officer training in this country is that although it's rare that they get involved in a career in a firefight, and you can verify whether that's accurate or not, when they do get involved in a firefight, 83% of their shots miss. And I've been told that there are two reasons that 83% of their shots miss, and at very close range, by the way, at very close range. One reason is human adrenaline. Human adrenaline is such that even great shooters can miss without, uh, when it comes to a human being firing back at them. But the second problem is, and this is what I, what I want to get your information on, is that other than a very small allotment of ammunition, and I've heard it's as little as 25 or 50 shells, police officers have to pay for their own ammunition for firearms training. Is that true? So... I'm going to speak from my experience, and I'm not going to. I'm not coming at this from an angle to to criticize. But um, when I go when I go shoot at a private uh, uh, um, gun range, um, I don't hit the department up for extra bullets. I take my own firearms and I take my own bullets. So I don't have a reference point to share with you where I turn to the department for more bullets and they denied me. Right. But I do know one more thing in my department. Our, our, our range is always open to anybody who wants to practice. And, and sometimes you hear people down there um, practicing. So I, I don't know if that was helpful. I, I can't confirm or deny people getting turned away from needing bullets. Well, the reason you know I'm, I mean, yeah, the reason I'm asking, Sarko, is that ammunition has increased in price dramatically. A 45 sure. ACP shell can now cost as much as 60 or 70 cents. For one, a nine millimeter mm -hmm. can cost close to that. We're talking about 60, 70, 60 or 70 or $80 for 100 shots. 100 shots in training isn't really a lot of shots. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the word on the street is if you want to get really, really good, you got to take 10,000 shots. But certainly you've got to get into the thousands to get good. Well, 1,000 shots at 67 cents or 70 cents a shot, you're asking a police officer to spend 700 bucks, and I hear that your salaries aren't all that great. So is this something else that could be helped, for, could be rectified to give these people more firearms training? Oh, absolutely. If you could put more funding into any training, you're going to help the officer's abilities exponentially. Any training whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah. And that costs money. That costs money. Right. But now let me let me let me say something about the firearm example that you brought up. Right. You want an officer to be able to automatically go into training patterns without thinking. We're talking flow states here. Yes. Right. To right to enter and exit a flow state takes years and years of time and practice. That costs money. That costs money. And I'm with you all the way. And our officers deserve that. They deserve that. Our, because if our officers are highly trained, 
and they can enter and exit flow states and they can manage their adrenaline dump and cortisol, our people are better off for it. It's all interconnected. Well, <laughs> I'm going to share something personal with you, Sarko, because as I, as I said in the introduction, you know, you're, you're the first working police officer in the country who's certified in addiction recovery. I may be one of the few or only clinical psych doctors of clinical psychology in the country who's a nationally certified firearm safety officer. Oh, that's, thanks for sharing that with me. That, that totally makes, my intuition was saying something's up, right? You have it. You have it. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I happen to be a psychologist who hugs a tree but can shoot a target with accuracy. <laughs> Understood. I, and, and what an amazing country we live in where uh, uh, we have the freedoms and rights that are sacred, enshrined in our constitution and our founding documents, right? Uh, it's, this is one of the, the, the most amazing countries um, on earth, in my opinion, and it, it deserves reverence and care, and we need to keep working to make it better to for make all it, of us. And to, yes, and to keep it as a democracy and a republic and not an authoritarian fascist dictatorship like we see happening so much around the world right now. That's right. That's right. I couldn't agree with you more. Sarko, it's been a distinct pleasure having you on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I've enjoyed our interview very much. Oh, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, you brought something up about us touching base about some information, and uh, I'm looking forward to keep a conversation going with you, sir. I, it's been my pleasure. Let's just stay in touch for the rest of our lives. <laughs> I love it. And, and, I love it. And when I speak to Rick, I'm going to send your regards. Oh, please do. I certainly do. will. And thank yes. you all, gentle listeners for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And let me remind you to go to our website, look over the archives, find some programs that are interesting to you. There will be some, I promise. Consider subscribing to our program. Your help will help us. And once again, I'm going to just show my book that just came out recently to those of you who are looking at this and of those of you who are listening and not looking. The name of the book is Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Awards of Mind-Altering Substances. I look forward to communicating with you all in the near future, which means next week. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.